Welcome back to The Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, joined here today by our host and star of the show, Mark Wiley. This is A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, episode 445 on our network. We're going to be without Will George today, so I'll be subbing in for Will here and there during the show. But before we bring on Mark and introduce our great guest, just want to thank our audience, 67,000 now and growing 74 countries. This is the first show of a Friday triple header today, so two shows following this one today. I want to thank you for your support. Make sure you support our sponsor, Jaw Bats. RVG at checkout will get you a discount on the on Major League Baseball's newest certified maple bat. My son Tanner's using it. The M110 model, lefty and righty, loves it. Jeff Fry used it down in Fantasy Camp, our host of She Gone. Got a double in his first at-bat, so it's got to work. So <laughs> with uh, also with uh, Bonet is a, is a net company, been around for ages. Uh, we'll look out for our partnership with them, as well as Kinetic Arm. If you didn't listen to the episode last Friday, tune in to She Gone last Friday. We had Jason Colleran on. Tremendous device to help not just pitchers, but all baseball players with this rash of arm injuries. So uh, great, great device for them. And to our marketing partner, Millions, our, our apparel should be up today. Hats, t-shirts, sweatshirts, all sorts of good stuff with our new logo on it. Make sure you follow us on Millions. We'll put that tag in our in our bios on social media as well. So with that, oh, you know what? I forgot to mention, Mark, too. It's the last day of the nomination, so the awards come out next week. But thank you to our audience nominating us for Baseball Podcast of the Year for Sports Podcast Group and the Webbies. We appreciate that support. Um, with that, Mark, welcome back to your show. I know we're going to be without Will today. We'll see if we can manage, but uh, let's introduce our great guest. Got a packed show for today. Yeah, we've got a great guest. Uh, some of the He's a coach, a teacher. He has impact on and off the field. Uh, he's been a friend and a compadre with me for years. Um, we coached together with the Marlins, and, uh, and then we worked together with the Colorado Rockies. Our guest is Steve Foster. Um, Steve's been a, been a longtime major league coach, uh, having an impact throughout uh, several organizations. Um, Steve attended DeSoto High School in DeSoto, Texas, for people that from Texas, our listeners. He was a three-sport athlete in basketball, baseball, and football. Uh, in baseball, his record in baseball was 44-4 and four as a pitcher, uh, which is pretty impressive for the years he was there. Uh, twice was a state, uh, all-state honors. Uh, they won the state uh, Texas State Championship. Uh, he went on to go to uh, Vin College University and University of Texas at Arlington, where he made a name for himself as Southland Conference Pitcher of the Year in 1988. He graduated uh, uh, after, you know, he got into playing and he continued his education and graduated from the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, um, and and became a, a coach there, an assistant coach there while he was uh, going to school. So uh, his professional career uh, started in 88. He was a 12th round pick for the Cincinnati Reds, uh, played for... <clears throat> three or four years in the Cincinnati Reds minor league system uh, where he accumulated like 72 saves and a 2.80 ERA, which is outstanding any league, much less in professional baseball. Uh, made the major league team, Cincinnati, 91 to 93. He was basically the setup man for Rob Dibble with those great Cincinnati teams. Uh, in 59 games, he had a 2.41 earned run average had three strikeouts per nine walk ratio and only walked 2.2 uh, batters per game, which is unbelievable. Um, had a shoulder injury um, during the 93 season and then ended up trying to make a comeback, but in, in 94, he retired. Uh, it moved on and got a scouting job with the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, from there, he moved to the University of Michigan as a coach and did baseball camps at the University of Michigan. Um, in 99, he went back to Tampa Bay, 
for three years as their as another as a scout. Um, then he left there and managed in the Wisconsin Woodchucks of the Northwest Collegiate Summer League uh, for a couple years, and then decided he wanted to be a youth pastor at uh, Highland Community Church in Wausau, Wisconsin. Um, after his stay there, he got back into professional baseball as a minor league pitching coach for the Marlins for a couple of years. Then he became a bullpen coach for the Marlins. That's where I was a big league pitching coach and he was my compadre. Um, we did, some, we felt like we did some great things there. Um, and then he moved on to Kansas City Royals as their bullpen coach, uh, transitioned into the pitching coordinator for Kansas City. Um, then I was with the Colorado Rockies and we needed a pitching coach and we interviewed Steve for the uh, pitching coach of the Rockies and he got the job as the major league pitching coach for uh, a number of years from 14 till 21. And in 1921, uh, I retired and he took over my director of pitching for the Colorado Rockies. So you can see he's had quite a, quite a career. Uh, he's a devout Christian. Uh, that's where he kind of has impact on and off the field. He's taken missionary trips to Dominican Republic. Um, personal note, he's married with two children. Um, his daughter is an assistant coach. Daughter Lauren is an assistant coach at the University of Oklahoma Sooners National Championship softball team. Um, accomplishments, like I said, he was all state in high school, state champion in high school, Southern uh, Southland Conference Pitcher of the Year. Uh, he led the helped help the Rockies get to the wild card in 2017, uh, then again in 18, and all the way to the division series against the Milwaukee Brewers. So we're here to welcome Steve. Uh, he's a very close and great friend of mine. Uh, we're so happy to have him on because I think he's going to give you some really great insights. Welcome, Steve. Thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate uh, that's a lot hearing that about yourself, and I really appreciate you sharing. <laughs> yeah, well, I do these bios, and sometimes I find out stuff about people they didn't even know about them, and I certainly <laughs> didn't know. So uh, you're no different than some of my other guys. Um, you know, our show we have a a lot of different people on. We, you know, we've uh, we've 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 had just about every walk of life in baseball. And uh, and people who like yourself have had impacts outside of baseball. You know, well, it's a it's an honor to be here and to talk about a game that we both love. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad to have you. You know, um, I will preface it. It's not out now, but at one time, Steve uh, and his father wrote a book and a book uh, lessons from Little League to Light and Life lessons from Little League and Life. Um, Really good book. Um, I'd like to see it published again. Um, it uh, it's he, we're going to cover a little bit of some of the insights in that book uh, today. But I wanted to start off, and you know, you know, since since you've been in baseball, there's been a lot of changes, rules, uh, how the game's played, how what's taught. Uh, what are some of the things you've seen that that you felt shouldn't have been changed, and some things that you think are are in the right direction. That's a great way to start, Mark. Um, you know, I think at the major league level, 13 years as a coach, a little over three as a player, uh, I've seen a lot of changes. And I guess for much of my life, I considered myself a traditionalist, you know, someone who held the rules and regulations of the game sacred. However, I believe that as I've aged, um, and experience much in the game, that I've been willing to listen more to more opinions, and I've even changed a few of my own. So it's not that I don't love the game of baseball and I don't hold the, the rules uh, sacred. I do. But, I, I, you know, I love the smell of popcorn and the white lines, the pitching mound, and, the, and, and an umpire with a good strike call. Love that. Loved well-pitched games and extra innings, walk-offs punch outs. I mean, I love the game of baseball and so much of it has been a part of my my entire life. Uh, but the pitch clock, you know, is something that I've believed in for a long time. Matter of fact, I've used a stopwatch in the dugout 
and and actually timed pitchers in between pitches and and brought it to their attention to keep their infielders on their toes. And, you know, hitters and pitchers were just taking too much time at the big league level, in my opinion. Um, you know, like the commissioner of baseball who wanted to speed the game up. And I, and I understand that there were some things in the game that even though traditionalists might not like with the addition of the pitch clock, I mean, there are certain hitters in the big leagues like Juan Soto and Justin Turner and uh, Grandal. I mean, they're stepping out in every at bat once a, a pitcher was starting his delivery. Uh, and then, of course, that so many pitchers were just taking so much time in between pitches and and they couldn't control it themselves. The players couldn't control it. Uh, the, the coaches couldn't get the players to control it. So the commissioner took it upon himself to put the uh, the pitch clock in. And much like the shot clock in basketball, there were some improvements that I felt like that that it has helped the game move along. And that one didn't bother me at all, Mark, but the, the pizza box bases, you know, uh, <laughs> that's what they look like to me. Um, you know, I think that that creates more offense and shortens the running lane, you know, for the guys stealing bases, uh, taking away from pickoff throws, um, only giving the pitchers two. And on the third one, if they don't pick them off, they automatically get the bag. Uh, you know, that's that's about creating more offense to me. And I'm a pitching guy. Uh, and I was at, you know, arguably the toughest place on the planet Earth to be a pitching guy. Uh, and when you create more offense, you just make it more and more and more difficult for the pitching coaches and the pitchers to be successful. And I realized that, you know, one of the drives of the game was to create more fandom. And one of the ways of doing that is by creating more offense, arguably. And so I understand the reasons behind what's been done. But, you know, for the last 20 or 30 years in the game of baseball, certainly since I've been at the big league level as a player, or as a coach, uh, most of the changes that have happened in baseball have favored the offense. Yeah, it's a, uh, you're absolutely right. And, you know, um, you know, going back to your, the, the time clock, you know, I always felt like I, actually it just helped the umpires to enforce what was always in there that just kind of got washed away. And we had Mike Hargrove on our show, who was known as the human rain delay, uh, <laughs> because he took so much time getting in and out of the box. And we asked him about it. And he said, he said, I, I said, well, how would you have handled? He says, I would have made the adjustment. It wouldn't have been that big a deal. He says, I would have just taken less time, but I would have dent my ritual, you know, right. um, which, you know, could be adjusted. I, I, you know, I think the game should be played at an upbeated pace. Um, there were some pitchers in, in the game that were and hitters that were both known for taking a long time. Um, but uh, I'm kind of glad to see that. I don't have any problem with it. I think, you know, I worked really fast. Um, I had some really, and if I was on my game, I had really fast games. So, um, you know, I appreciate it. We have Jim Cott as one of our uh, podcasts, and and Jim Cott was known during a period of time his his his, uh, his career where he pitched like his hair was on fire. He took no time between pitches, and he won twenty games. I think back to back seasons doing that. Um, and uh, so there was a, a good offensive uh, pitcher approach by working faster, and it it makes the hitters not feel as comfortable. And that's what we're all trying to do. Yes, totally agree. And I think there's a correlation to how you work at a good tempo and your success. You know, in today's game, there's some different thoughts on what's important for a pitcher. You know, a lot of the controversy now is uh, the war between velocity and command. You know, uh, you know, you and I have talked about it in the past. You know, pitching coaches, I think, kind of know the answer. But can you give us your feeling on you know, what's going on in the game now and some of the emphasis has been put on velocity over command? Yes, uh, this is a great debate in today's baseball culture, um, you know, from, from the facilities to amateur ball versus the major leagues. And velocity without command is just chucking a baseball. And the new teaching going on has, has created a vast amount of young guys who can throw hard but not pitch. 
And that's a reality. I mean, driveline is not getting paid to create strike throwers. I mean, they're getting paid tons of money to create hard throwers. And they're not alone. I mean, they're well-meaning folks in the training industry across America, well, across the world, who help young pitchers throw harder, which makes them more attractive to college coaches and pro scouts. And the radar gun's been a a tool used by evaluators for a long time. I mean, that's no secret. Baseball usually starts with that question even today. I mean, what's his velocity? What's he sit at? Uh, It's not, can he pitch? So, and it's not, can he control the ball? It's, you know, or what's his makeup? That's not where it starts. It starts with what's his velocity. I mean, that, that's where conversation generally starts when you're talking about a prospect or even a major league pitcher. So velo's great, but it's even greater when it's commanded. And if velocity is not commanded or controlled, then I think, you know, we consider that pitcher more of a reliever in the major leagues. I mean, we just let it eat for an inning or two and punch them out or walk them. I mean, that's that's the way the game has tailored itself to in today's baseball world at the elite levels. I mean, a pitcher's makeup, uh, his delivery, his delivery, in my opinion, are generally better indicators of success at the higher levels than velocity. I mean, if a pitcher can command velocity, then he generally has a good delivery and he can repeat it, right? I mean, we can say if a guy lacks mental toughness or competitiveness, if he's not resilient, if he doesn't have the right attitude, if he's not adaptable. I mean, I could I could name a lot of things that are a part of the makeup of a, of a major league pitcher that separates him from a minor league pitcher or an amateur pitcher. And it's not, I wouldn't start with velocity. I mean, I would start with all those things I just mentioned, the mental toughness, this level of competitiveness, his attitude, uh, his command, his reliability. I mean, all those things. I mean, if all those things also come with velocity, then you got yourself a, a, a an absolute major league pitcher that has longevity. Well, you know, we both had guys that had great arms, but we knew that the fear would get in them. Yes. And as good as their delivery was, as good as their arm was, it gets short-circuited when you have fear creep in or doubt doubt your abilities. Uh, you're not mentally tough. Um, that affects the the repeatability of your delivery. It it affects uh, your your uh, want to to make a pitch, uh, your investment to the pitch because you've got a distraction. That fear is a distraction. And that's why the best pitchers, you know, they they repeat their delivery, but they don't short circuit because the, they have a plan and they're not afraid. That's right. They're emotionally connected. And emotionally, they, they are able to separate one pitch from the next pitch. What happened on the last pitch does not affect this pitch. Who's standing in the on-deck circle does not affect this pitch. What has happened, what will happen, doesn't affect the now and the execution of this pitch and the importance of living in the moment, which is, that's, that's how I describe, Mark, mental toughness. Somebody says, how do you describe mental toughness? I say, being able to live in this moment. That's great. That's a great comment. I'd never thought about but that. That's absolutely true. You know, and people talk about velocity and I always tell them, I said, okay, um, some of the greatest pitchers in, in the history of the game had tremendous velocity. But if you go back, the reason they were the best was because they had the, the marriage with command. Yeah. You know, the Roger Clemens was one of the best command pitchers in baseball with the best stuff. Well, right. that's what a superstar is. No and, doubt. They, but, they throw but, strikes when they want to, and they go in and out of the strike zone when they want to. But they, but when they need to throw a strike, they know where to go and how to get it done. And exactly. Them. And the command is a command is is commanding in and out of the strike zone. People, you know, uh, ball to strike ratio is you know walk ratio and stuff. That's for control grade. But command means how you command the ball throughout in and out of the strike zone. And, you know, my argument is always this, okay. um, Can you be a star, a superstar uh, 
if you don't have velocity, uh, you know, you just average or maybe a little below. Of course, there's been Greg Maddox's and people like that. Frank Tanana, there's been pitchers that commanded the ball. So it just shows that that the importance of commanding the ball, if you don't, if you're not gifted with tremendous velocity, it doesn't mean you can't be a great pitcher. Um, but if you have tremendous velocity and no command, it's really difficult for you to ever be a great pitcher. Completely agree. And we've both been in this game a long time and we've seen all kinds and types of pitchers at the big league level, righties, lefties, that throw from different arm slots and have different deliveries, but they all do the same thing, but look different, right? They all have balance and rhythm and timing and direction in their deliveries. And but but they have to be able to command the baseball, especially the less the lesser velocity, the more the command's got to be there. And if they're a high velocity guy, they have to have good enough control, not command, if they're going to pitch in the big leagues. Yeah, and you know, and the command is not finite. I mean, some guys have tremendous late movement, but they know how to throw it to different zones of the strike zone and let it play. That's command too. You know, yeah. it's not like you're you're shooting a bullet. You know, it, it, guys know how to use their movement within certain areas. It's not finite, but it has the same effect as uh, to make hitters aware of different areas. Yes, totally agree. Movement, velocity, you know, location, all of those things are important uh, along with changing speeds. You know, I mean, hitting is timing. The guys that figure out how to change speeds, whether it's uh, 89 to 79 or 99 to 89, those guys that figure that out uh, at an earlier age. I mean, I, I travel the, the United States and even down into the Caribbean. And, you know, uh, one of my primary discussions is learning how to and trusting yourself to change speeds, knowing that hitting is a timing uh, objective. Yeah, it, it, they have to, you know, because they're coached to, to throw hard and that's how they get signed, um, they got to learn how to leave that behind them and learn how to pitch. And sometimes that's difficult for some of them. No doubt about it. And the magic is, is when you realize you don't have to throw every pitch as hard as you can and see the results. And when they play out well, remembering it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Memory and, and the best pitchers I know, and I'm sure you you could reiterate it. Uh, the best pitchers I had have the best memories too. You know, they remember everything. Selective memory. They got short memories when they need it and, yeah. and then they can recall when they need it. Yes. Did, uh, listen, you, you know, you've been a major league coach for years and, and you were both a bullpen coach with me and, uh, and a pitching coach in the big leagues. You know, how do you see those two different roles as a coach and, uh, you know, do you have to motivate the guys differently? You know, how do you handle uh, starting pitchers versus bullpen guys? Great question. Uh, definitely a difference. I mean, I think I'll start as a pitching coach. I think you're preparing the entire group, right, with a philosophy or a mindset, things that are important to you that you feel like is going to bring about success. I mean, you have to organize the day activities. You got to prepare the group with a scouting report of the opponent. Uh, you got to handle the throwing program and bullpens and you got to connect with each guy, both starter and reliever. But with the starters, you got to build a trust. You know, it starts with a relationship. They got to believe in what you're teaching and what you're training. And, you you know, you've got to work on building a rapport with the catchers and what the what the game plan is with the starters uh, so that he's able to get the most out of his stuff for each given game. What's he got today? How are we going to get to it? And then having in-game discussions with the with the starters uh, to try to help get them as long as you possibly can to stay in that game and and learning what starters like more and what starters like less. Some a lot uh, you know a lot of starters don't want a lot of information in game, uh, and some are have the same constant heartbeat throughout the game that you can discuss all parts of the game with them during in-between innings. So I think it's more just learning each guy individually and seeing what makes it, you know, him tick. And in the bullpen, it's more about building a family of one, you know, that something where they're, we're all in this together. We pick each other up. We're a family. 
inherited runners matter to us and they don't score and they take pride in it. And it's more about winning the game and then sweeping the slate, cleaning the slate and going to the next game. And it's just this game, win it. However, we got to get it done, win it and move on. It's, it's like a pl- platoon mentality. You know, it's the only place in sport where a part of the team sets away from the rest of the team. As far as I know, it's the only sport that has a part of the team that sits away from everyone else. It's like a satellite group. So it's important that the discussions that they have down there are edifying uh, about the staff and about the rest of the team and that they're not fire starting. So many bullpens have fire starting type conversations down there and and managing those as a bullpen coach are critical so that because you're a satellite group and not a part of sitting in the dugout with everyone else and feeling the emotion of the dugout, you're separated and you're waiting for your name to be called. And that's probably as big a thing as any for a bullpen coach is making sure that the guys are ready when their names are called. Steve, I've got a question for you. Um, you've got a reputation as a great communicator and Anybody that's listened to this podcast in this first 25 minutes can, can tell that right away. How do you balance the art of communication with connection? Communication being, this is what I need from you. Connection meaning, this is what I want for you. How, how do you work that nuance with, with today's athletes? I think the greatest way I can answer that is by using a cliche. And I hate to do it, but people don't know how much you care until they, you know, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care And that relationship, that connectivity happens in the dugout, in the clubhouse, uh, at the coffee shop. And and it's it's building a bridge that either one of you can cross at any time and have tough discussion and, and be able to talk about the real things in life that matter so that the things that are on the baseball field don't seem so enormous. They're just what you do. They're not who you are. And communication, you know, and getting the important things that a pitcher needs to understand and know during the on the field of battle come easy when there's already a relationship and a connection that's already been started. I like that. How important is telling athletes the truth? It's absolutely paramount. And it because uh, if you don't, when you, when you don't tell the truth and you get called out for it, it's hard to rebuild like any relationship you have in life, uh, in your marriage, in, in your, uh, you know, professional relationships. I mean, there's not a person on the planet that hasn't fudged the truth or told a lie. Uh, we're human beings. We make mistakes. Owning those mistakes uh, are as important as telling the truth. So uh, telling truth is critical in, for a coach, for sure. Mark, I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, Thanks for letting me. That was, those are great questions, Dave, and, uh, and great response by Steve. Um, that's the kind of response I knew Steve would give because, you know, the way he thinks about things is the way that so many people need to think about them, and I think that's great to get it across. I know when I worked with the bullpen with you, this is funny because, I, you know, I came from, from uh, Cleveland and and uh, Baltimore and different clubs. And and when I was in Cleveland, um, I used to, you know, we had a a strength coach, Fernando Montez, who was a football guy. And I used to start to think about, you know, how could we do some things they do in football and baseball? Because he's, he was transforming our conditioning, um, uh, making baseball a conditioning sport, uh, which had never really been. And uh, so I started thinking, so I started doing a, a version of uh, uh, the pre-series meeting with some video of the hitters that we're going to be, we were going to see um, and try to limit the information we give them, which is really hard because you get a lot of information even more in today's game. Um, but I remember by the time I got to the Marlins, I remember I, I used to do the group meeting with the entire pitching staff. And when we were down there, I think it was you, Steve, that suggested that we separate them and uh, you handled the bullpen meetings and I handled the starters. And I thought that was a really good adjustment uh, to something that I'd been doing. I thought was beneficial, but I think it was way more beneficial uh, limiting it. And uh, 
And I thought the other thing was the fact that we put the guys, you know, through our conversations and and knowledge, we we realized what the roles were for our bullpen guys. And we tried to keep them in those roles because if you're in a comfortable role where you fit, uh, you know, a better chance of being successful. And I thought I thought we did a really good job with that. Yeah, thank you, Mark. And I agree with what you just said. And yeah, when relievers know their roles, there's a level of comfort of what to expect, when to expect it. And uh, in all areas of life, when we know what the expectations are and we know when they're expected, we're going to be a lot more successful uh, than not. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, go to another question. You know, you're probably, yeah, there's more of them now, but you know, you have experience at the college level and collegiate summer league as a coach and manager. And, uh, you know, you had some great experiences. I'd love you to tell the story about Ben Zobrist uh, when you were uh, with the uh, Wooden Bat League in, uh, in the summer league. It's a great story. So I appreciate you asking. Um, ben Zobrist was at uh, Olivet Nazarene University uh, in Kankakee or Bourbon, Illinois, just south of Chicago. And he wanted to play in the Northwoods League uh, 2002. And he kept sending me emails and I would just delete them because, you know, all of that Nazarene, I had guys from Baylor and USC and AM, and I had guys from Division One schools all over the nation coming to play for me. So he kept uh, emailing me and I was deleting them. Well, the season ended in 2002 and he sent me another email and I'm like, you know, uncle, yeah, <laughs> back off, please. And then he sent me another email. So I'm like, I've got to call this kid. He won't back off. He wants to play up here uh, and he wants to play in this league. So I called his coach, Elliot Johnson, and I asked him if I could work Ben out. And so I drove down on a misty October uh, morning uh, from the center of Wisconsin down to Bourbon A. And I, uh, we went out on the field, it was misting rain and I hit him about 10 or 11 ground balls. And man, this guy just looked dynamic. He's throwing on the run. He showed a great arm. He showed athleticism. He dove and made a play and stood up and pirouetted and threw a bullet to first. So I, I knew this guy defensively was special in 10 or 12 ground balls. Uh, and that's all I needed at that point in time. And I always like to finish when I'm working a guy out by hitting a they pop up and I popped it and it's going to the outfield and I'm yelling, let it go. And Ben had already turned and was full out sprinting and dove, caught the ball in the, uh, on the wet grass, a flat, you know, straight out on his stomach over the shoulder. Unbelievable. Uh, you know, NFL type receiver catch and then ran into me, flipped the ball to me and was like, you know, have you seen enough? And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, I have seen plenty. Uh, but, the, you know, I needed to see him swing the bat. So we, it was rain, you know, rain had picked up a little. So we went inside and I threw him some pitches and he was hitting right handed. And he said, Coach, can I show him I can hit left handed? So I looked over at him and I'm like, Is he a switch hitter? And he said, Well, here we just, he hits right handed because he hits 450. He really doesn't need to hit left handed. And so I'm like, sure, switch over. So he switched over and it, he was just wearing balls out. I mean, it just I made sure I was behind the, the L screen, like throwing the Miguel Cabrera BP. I mean, it was coming off of his bat. And, and we, we guys that throw uh, batting practice know the guys that we need to make sure that no part of our bodies are outside that L screen. And he did it right-handed and left-handed. We went in and after that, and he signed the contract. It was his junior year. I thought he would be drafted and I'd never see the kid based on what I saw. But he went undrafted and uh, ended up uh, being the MVP of the league that year in the Northwoods League. And we won the championship. And he ended up transferring to a Division I school down in Dallas, Dallas Baptist and had a phenomenal year there and was drafted in the fifth or sixth round by the Houston Astros. And then three or four years after that was playing in the World Series with the Tampa Bay Rays uh, and was named MVP of their team. Uh, they lost in the World Series to the Philadelphia Phillies. But uh, Ben went on to 
played 13 years in the big leagues, was the MVP of the World Series uh, with the Chicago Cubs, played against us in 17 or 18 in the wild card game, the 13 inning game that we won two to one uh, in the 13th inning, which was incredible at Wrigley Field. But Ben was on the other side of the field, which was quite ironic for both of us, you know, fast forwarding that many years. But Ben's story was an incredible story um, and, and one of perseverance. And I'm just grateful that God allowed me to a short amount of time with him. Yeah, I'm glad you got to tell that story. I always That's one of my favorite stories. You know, there's so many players that go through all these things and people just see him on TV in a high profile world series or playoff game. And, and, and the fans are looking at, they think that this guy was high profile his whole life. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, they don't realize that how they grinded or how, you know, they weren't noticed. Um, And, uh, you know, I always say that, you know, I believe that good players, um, they have a confidence and an understanding that they know that they can do it. And they're their most uh, uh, motivating factor themselves or their most motivating. Not, not, I mean, not that people haven't helped them and, 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 and did things for them and gave them opportunities, but there has to be something in your heart that you have a belief that you belong and that you should be there regardless of what anybody else says or, 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 uh, uh, does to you. I agree. And that summer, that 2003 summer, he switched up for the first time in his life every day uh, with a wood bat and was one of the leading hitters in the league. And you got to know, you know, he had never done that full time. Um, and from there, he just, he went on and switched hit the rest of his career and, and had some incredible seasons and was one of the, you know, had the best war in baseball for several years at the major league level you know, hitting right and left-handed because he had such a tremendous eye. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and a leader at Kansas City, too. No doubt, um, yes. Uh, their World Series run, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, Dayton Moore traded for Ben in 15 uh, in, for the year they won the World Series. I was with them in 14 and left to go to the Colorado Rockies. And then in 15, Dayton traded for him. So I never got to coach Ben again after 2003. <laughs> you know, you know, that kind of leads me into, you know, a lot of uh, young players and parents um, uh, need to know what, what opportunities there are out there to, I mean, what, what they need to do to make the most of their opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for young players, you know, through amateur baseball and into, into high school and college, um, not even thinking of professional baseball, just being the best player you can. Um, what, what's important to you for, you know, as a parent and a coach for young players? Well, you know, I think as an athlete, when I was active or now, even as a coach, it's a similar mindset. And that's like every day, you know, this could be our last day here. Uh, uh, for a player, it could be your last pitch you ever make. For a hitter, your last pitch you ever see. You, you know, the next pitch isn't guaranteed. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Make the most of every opportunity. Uh, focus, breathe, have fun, enjoy the moments. You know, time is measured in minutes, but um, life is measured in moments. And if we got to enjoy the moments that we have here together, and when we get to play a sport like baseball, you got to enjoy it. And I like this, you know, Mark Batterson in his book, Win the Day, which I think is a tremendous book, he calls something Eat the Frog. And, and it goes like this. If someone tells you to eat a frog every day, it's best that you do it first thing in the morning, because the longer you wait, the less likely you're going to eat that frog. <laughs> and so it's taking care of what's most important first before what's most urgent. And I think for an athlete, if you can, uh, you know, prioritize in your life what's most important and take care of what's most important before your list of what's urgent, that's what makes great people great. They focus and they line up the things that are need to be taken care of and they get those done first. 
And, you know, making the most of each opportunity that you're given is critical because you never know who's watching. You never know as a player. It's like the process before the goal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I mean, that goes to our, the book you wrote, Lessons for Little League and Life. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are some of the things from that book that pertain to this? Well, I think when we, my dad and I wrote this in 2005, um, I just managed in the in the College Wood Bat League. I had just gone into a full year of being a pastor of student ministry and going on a mission trip to the border of the Dominican and Haiti and and sharing life with people that have lived life a lot different than me. And my dad and I spent time on our experiences, his as a little league coach of 30 years. He had five children. So he spent a lot of his young adult life as a little league coach. And then, uh, you know, we wrote the book together, his perspective as the little league coach, my perspective as a little league player and growing up and the things that were important to me and playing multiple sports, you know, learning how to uh, work on a football field with numerous players playing numerous positions and being able to do athletically different things that were required of me than uh, than on the baseball field and on the basketball court and how important that paid dividends for me later in life and being able to uh, move around a baseball field and have spatial awareness and anticipate you know, the things I learned in basketball were find the open spot and anticipate the ball coming to you and be ready to shoot it before the defender gets there. And that paid off on the baseball field because I would always be thinking if the ball's hit over here, this is what I'm going to do with it and why. And I think that's critical for so many young people. So we, th- those were things that we added in the book was the importance of those types of things. And and my dad wrote about, you know, the creativity and teaching a little leaguer so that they fall in love with the game and that 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 love affair that they have with the game isn't run by monotony in training, but there's creativity and funness to every practice. Yeah, that's funny you said that because every every good coach I had was unbelievably creative. And, uh, you know, and as a major league coach or minor league coach, you know, Players appreciate it when you try to come up with ways to to make a point or to teach something. Um, Let me plug and they remember. Let me plug you real quick because that was something that uh, inspired me. um, You know, to move on to want to be a major league pitching coach was watching you and the creativity and the things that you did to to help the you know get rid of the monotony. I mean the way that you would take the uh, the rubber balls in the outfield during batting practice and line up, you know, grab pitchers randomly in the outfield and just smoke 10 or 15 balls at them. And it was a, it was a competition, man. Those guys took it serious, but you know, that's just making the most of time building relationship and helping the player. And I thought it was great. Yeah. It's, you know, and it makes it fun to me. I mean, uh, to me, I, I came up with some of my, my best ideas laying in bed at night before I went to sleep, looking at the ceiling and thinking about a player who had an issue and how I could help him with it. Um, you know, I think, I think good coaches do that. You know, we, we, we take a lot of time, um, not necessarily physical, but mental time to try to figure out ways to help players. Yes. Now you, you mentioned that, uh, the word perspective and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I know you've got a good story to illustrate that, but, you know, wh- how do you define it and, and tell your little story about perspective? In 2014, around June, middle of June, early June, early June, Dayton Moore calls me up. I've flown. I was a coordinator for the Kansas City Royals. I'd flown from Dallas, Texas to Wilmington, Delaware where we had an A-ball team playing and I was going to be in there for a week. And I was, I'd landed, I was standing at the baggage claim and the phone rang and it was Dayton. And he said, I need you to get to Oklahoma city. We're sending Kelvin Herrera down to triple a, and I want you to be there and spend some time with him. And I said, well, Dayton, I just landed in Wilmington. I'm getting ready. He said, go ahead and make the switch. (laughs) So 
when your boss makes that phone call, uh, you make the phone call. So I stayed at the airport. I got on a flight to uh, Oklahoma City. And the next morning, I picked up Kelvin Herrera from the from the hotel at 10 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I was praying on the airplane for for some things from I needed some help. You know, the the, the approach I was going to take with Kelvin, uh, he had about a mid five, low six ERA. He was struggling at the major league level. Part of what made Kansas City so good was the three headed monster at the back end of the bullpen with Greg Holland, Wade Davis, and Kelvin, and Kelvin wasn't holding up his end of the bargain at that time. And so when I picked up Kelvin and the thoughts that God had given me were that the Women's College Softball World Series was beginning on that day. So I picked up Kelvin at the hotel and I told him not to talk, just to get in the car and like, we're going to drive across town and spend some time together. And I drove him up to uh, the outside of the stadium there on the uh, north side of Oklahoma City. And we got out and we took the trolley. I mean, this place is packed. Thousands, you know, 10,000 people were there. And uh, Washington was playing Nebraska in the opening game. And uh, Kelvin and I walked in, bought a couple of Pepsis and hot dogs, walked around the grandstand and went to the outfield bleachers. And we were sitting in the middle of a bunch of screaming little girls, probably from the ages of five to 13 years old, that just would have died for the opportunity to be down on that field. And there was Kelvin and I sitting in the middle of them. And uh, we sat there for four or five innings and didn't talk. We ate our hot dogs, drank our Pepsis and watched the game. And then about um, the fifth inning, somewhere in there in the middle of the game, he says to me, uh, Fati, why are we here? <laughs> He's a Dominican, his broken English. Uh, that's how he asked me. And I said, Kelvin, uh, I'm glad you asked. I said, you know, we're here to talk a little bit about perspective. And naturally he said, perspective? He didn't understand what that word was. And I realized it after I said it. Uh, but I said, yeah, I, I want to talk to you about perspective. That's, that's the way you view life and where you're at right now and how with your pitching. And I said, you know, uh, you're worrying too much about what other people think and you're trying to please others. And you can't do that as a major league pitcher. You've got to do what makes you great. What makes you great? And he defined his pitches and talked a little bit about them. And I said, that's right. And I said, you've got to have faith. You've got to have faith in your ability and the God that created you and not try to uh, please other people. And that's called perspective, brother. And literally, uh, there are moments in life, uh, destiny doesn't make appointments. It usually shows up at the door unannounced. And it often knocks quietly at the door. And that day for Kelvin, I felt like destiny was knocking. And he literally, you know, he threw an inning that night against Oklahoma City, went back to the big leagues and had a one ERA the rest of the year. And I do believe that that day was a critical day in Kelvin. Herrera's career. And we don't know as a coach when those moments are going to occur and how we share perspective with others and help people with their viewpoint of life, because we can all get off the track, man. Life's hard and pleasing other people is difficult and you can't do it. And if you live your life that way, it's a tough way to live it. So with Kelvin that day, uh, he, he went on and we went to the World Series. And I think in game two or three, uh, game two was at uh, Kauffman Stadium and I was walking around the outfield bleachers and I looked down and Holland and uh, Herrera were playing catch in the outfield. It was early before the game started and uh, Holland saw me and looked up at me and waved and then Kelvin turned around. He was on the line throwing away from the line. He turned around, looked up at me, dropped his glove and yelled, perfective. And it was a it was a special moment. <laughs> it was a special moment because I knew that he remembered and it made a difference. I love that, that, that story. And that's why through our career, after I heard that story, I, we used to, in some situation would come and we'd look at each other and go perspective. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah. That's a you key know, guys, right? You guys have both been around some of the best of the best and helping an athlete change perception to perspective because perceptions that's the influence of the outside world, and that can be dangerous, especially with so much input these these guys have today. 
with social, but uh, I think that's a key point. I'm sorry I interrupted, but our audience needs to grab onto that. This is huge. Going from perception to perspective is uh, can make a big difference for you guys, even if they can't pronounce it. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's yeah, great. It's, uh, yeah, I you know I I remember I I, I had uh, Boyd Coffee was a was a guy he taught me he was my first manager in professional baseball we worked together at the Cleveland Indians for a period of time then the Rockies um and uh, uh that's uh, Boyd Boyd used to say that that you 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 got to find out what the player's perspective is yes he says because they you may think the guy's great he feels good about himself and he may not even be close to that um, so it's, your perspective can be wrong. Um, if you don't have that communication like Steve did with players. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Now I will go back to the time we interviewed Steve for, uh, for the Colorado Rockies pitching coach's job. We had a lot of really good candidates. Um, I thought Steve would be a great candidate to interview. So, you know, we had the manager, Walt Weiss, and, Jeff Reddish was the general manager, assistant general managers. We had a lot of people there um, during the interview process. I remember Steve walked in and he he hands everybody a notebook, um, which I'd never seen. I'd never thought about doing it when I'd been interviewed in the past, and I'd never seen anybody else do it. It was a great, uh, you know. I think it had a lot to do with his philosophies, you know, things that he'd done. I mean, it was just a really nice book, and. Uh, and we started the process of interviewing him. And I'll never forget this one. And it stuck with us. And I think the Rockies have used it. I've used it a million times. And it's what Steve came up. We said, what about pitching in Colorado? How, how would you address that? And I remember he said, it's about attitude over altitude. Mm. And uh, I'll never forget how that stuck with me. So that became a, a teaching point throughout the minor leagues who uh, at the time I was running the pitching, um, we emphasized that. Steve continued to emphasize it after he was hired as the pitching coach. And, you know, we never heard our pit pitchers ever complain about it. If a guy hit one off the end of the bat and it went out of the ballpark to right field down the line, you didn't hear the guy complaining about it because it was just the way it was. It was your attitude on how you handled. Can you talk about some of that, Steve? Or yeah, thanks, Mark. You know, Daryl Scott continues as our big league pitching coach today using that attitude over altitude. And it's uh, basically, I read a book when I was with the Kansas City Royals called Good to Great by Jim Collins, which I strongly suggest. It's a great book. But in the book, there's a, a principle that he calls the Stockdale Principle which is facing your current situation, no matter how dreary it is, and then finding out how to make the most of it, turning it into a positive. And to me, you know, altitude is a reality for Denver and Albuquerque, uh, you know, our big league team and our AAA team. And you, there's no, you know, you, you can't disregard it. It's a reality. So there, so what are we going to do about it? We're, you know, how are we going to address it? How are we going to face it and then turn it into a positive? And that's what we did with just the attitude and focusing on execution and a, having a relentless mentality and and being adaptable, uh, you know, daily. But, you know, that all is in tie, you know, tied into the attitude, which I, you know, if I were to define, it would be a pattern of our thoughts that are on display for others to see. That's our attitude. And attitude matters more than the altitude of which you pitch in. And, you know, our attitude leads to our choices. Our choices lead to our actions. Our actions speak of our character and our character leads to our destiny. And that to me is where it came from, Mark, and, and why I feel like it's so important for a pitcher who uh, it finds himself being a pitcher in, in altitude. You know, we, you know, and that, that's such a great point and it can be used. I love that book. Um, uh, we actually used it in, in Miami too. We were down there and we were coaching for the Marlins and we, our stadium, it was the old stadium. It was a football stadium, pro player stadium at the time uh, where the Dolphins played. And that's where the Marlins played. And, and, 
we have some unbelievably hot and humid games there. I mean, probably hotter and humid than most places, more consistently during the summer than any other team in baseball. And, uh, you know, we did the same thing with uh, just blocking it out and use it to our advantage and and knowing that the effect it would have on another team. Um, and we worked as a positive. And I never, again, I never heard any player, uh, I mean, of course, we started in spring training, but we never heard one player complain about the heat or, oh my God, it's unbelievable. You know, warming up in the bullpit. I mean, sweats just pouring off guys. Um, you know, remember Olsen where the, the water used to pour off his hat bill during the game. I mean, just like some, like a faucet and he was oblivious to it. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I have to give our, our training and our, and our strength coach a lot of kudos on that too. They did a great job of conditioning them, preparing for them and having them hydrated to where it didn't affect us mentally or physically as much as some other clubs. I agree. Now I have a final question here, and this is, has to do with, uh, your Christian beliefs, and and I know firsthand that you've had a you've been able to have an impact on players on and off the field as well as coaches. Um, uh, how do you feel is a good way to show show people um, uh, beliefs that can impact their lives? Well, I think. You know, baseball is what I do. It's not who I am. In other words, baseball is a game and it's a job for many folks like me. But my life is more important than baseball and my thoughts, my actions and my heart. That's who I am. You know, life's short. and We all make mistakes and we have to forgive others. And I think that's a, a huge part of being a believer is forgiveness. And in the game, you can get your feelings hurt every day. You got to be able to forgive. So we must actively live with, in my, my perspective is with an eternity perspective and not a now perspective. You know, performance does matter. What we say and what we do matters. You know, as a matter of fact, everything matters. I mean, but our hearts are paramount to a God who talks about our hearts throughout the Bible. And he's the one that created us and gave us the ability to make a difference while we're here. And I found in my own life that the freedom that God's given me through a relationship with him is the most important thing that I could share with anyone. Much more important than a grip of a fastball or finishing pitches or, or balance through a delivery. Uh, a player, another coach, a fan, anyone that I am privileged to come into contact with, I hope that I'm able to share an eternity perspective, which either comes through the, my actions, my words, or just in the way that a person feels. Because people don't remember what you say much or what you do, but they, and that, that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Angelo quote, and it's, it's a powerful one, but they will always remember how you make them feel. And I don't remember many things the coaches in my life have said to me or done. But when I think of them, I can always remember how they made me feel. And I think that's important because one constant aspect of Jesus' life was that he always made people feel loved and he forgave them and he felt like he, he gave them worth. And that's how I try to live my life, Mark. So thanks for that question. That's great. What a, way, what a great way to wrap it up. I, I, uh, I know we'd love to have you on again because, you know, your perspective and your friendship means a lot to me. Um, you know, you've helped me grow. Um, uh, it doesn't, uh, you never know, uh, impact you have personally on other people, but I will tell you, you've had a tremendous impact in my life. Thank you. Likewise. Well, Mark, that was a wonderful interview. Steve, thank you so much for, for sharing with our audience today. I don't care what country they were listening from, uh, they're going to they're gonna love it. And Mark is usually do a fantastic job of bringing out the, I think, the uh, the true soul of our guests uh, as prepared an interview as I've ever seen. I'm, I'm assuming that's how you ran your pitching staffs, too, because um, you are detailed beyond belief 
with these interviews. So I appreciate thank it, you, David. thank you for what you guys, what you do too. And we miss Will, uh, we miss Will today. Uh, we'll we'll send him a copy here, but we'll have him back next week. And I do think that's a great way to wrap uh, today for our audience. But to through that audience, sixty seven thousand. Thanks for what you do for us. We appreciate your support. Uh, we're moving in a really good direction. Uh, we'll, we'll update you guys on Millions, which is our new marketing partner. And we'll have experiences, both virtual and real, that you can bring our podcast hosts out and, and have them share their knowledge with you. Also, we'll have apparel out there so you can support your real voices of the game, hats and T-shirts and sweatshirts. We appreciate the nominations for the awards, the Webbies and Sports Podcast Group Baseball Podcast of the Year, all 14 of our podcasts. We put it up collectively just like that bullpen, Steve. We were a team, kind of the, uh, the the outliers out there attacking at the game. And Mark Wiley, thanks for throwing a, a complete game today. I knew you could probably go on extra innings if I asked you, huh? Oh, yeah, no problem. No doubt. Uh, talking and working with Steve is, is uh, you, you could tell. You could tell how good he is. Oh, absolutely. It's, he's a, we use the word authentic on all of our shows, and he's, he's truly authentic. And I, I know our, our kids' parents and coaches and front offices will all get that today. So. With that, episode 445, this is the first episode of a Friday triple header. We're followed up with KFT, a date in October with KFT. Then we've got the sauce later on with Tanner. So appreciate it. Mark, thanks so much for a day at the Yard Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Steve. Thank you.